Welcome back to Books of Bedtime. I'm Tyler, your narrator. We are reading The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, before we begin, uh, just a reminder, my Patreon is live. There is a Patreon um, exclusive podcast that I'm putting out as well. Um, right now we are reading The Name of the Wind. Not Sorry, that's what we're reading here. Uh, we're reading The Lightning Thief on the Patreon. Sorry. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, and that is, uh, it's patreon.com slash books at bedtime. All right. Uh, let's see here. Chapter 52, Burning. Owning a loot again meant I had my music back, but I quickly realized I was three years out of practice. My work in the artificery over the last couple months had toughened and strengthened my hands, but... Not in entirely the right ways. Okay, yeah, I, I play guitar, and yeah, that's, that's a thing. Um, I haven't been practicing for a long time, so I can maybe play for 20 minutes before my fingers are dying. Anyway, okay. Uh, it took several frustrating days before I could play comfortably for even an hour at a time. I might have progressed more quickly had I not been so busy with my other studies. I had two hours of each day in the Medica. Uh, running or standing an average of two hours of lecture and ciphering each day in mathematics and three hours of studying under Monet in the fishery, learning the tricks of the trade. And then there was advanced sympathy with Elksadal. Out of class, Elksadal was charming, soft-spoken, and even a little ridiculous when the mood was on him. But when he taught, his personality strode back and forth between mad prophet and galley slave drummer. Every day, like the, so, like in a, in a, like a galley is a, a ship with a bunch of oars, right? And so, that's like the drummer is the one who sets the pace for the. Uh, oarsman. Okay, uh, so the people who are rowing the oars. All right, uh, let's see, where was I? Ah, every day in his class, I burned another three hours of time and five hours worth of energy. Combined with my paid work in Kilvin's shop, this left me with barely enough time to eat, sleep, and study, let alone give my loot the time it deserved. Music is a proud, temperamental mistress. Give her the time and attention she deserves, and she is yours. Slight her, and there will come a day when you call and she will not answer. So I began sleeping less to give her the time she needed. After a span of this schedule, I was tired. After three span, I was still fine, but only through a grim set-jaw type of determination. Somewhere around the fifth span, I began to show definite signs of wear. It was during that fifth span that I was enjoying a rare, shared lunch with Willem and Simmon. They had their lunches from a nearby tavern. I couldn't afford a drab for an apple and a meat pie, so I had snuck some barley bread and a grisly sausage out of the mess. We sat on the stone bench beneath the pennant pole where I'd been whipped. The place had filled me with dread after my whipping, but I forced myself to spend time there to prove to myself that I could. You know, that's actually, um, it's actually kind of important with an anxiety, um, experience. Um, not, not to have someone else force you 
um because that just puts you back in the in the anxiety but to to face it willingly and to say no i'm stronger than this place or i'm stronger than this um i mean this this is of course not for every single uh experience but like if you had like a bad experience in like i don't know a grocery store or a or just like some place that you pass often that you try to avoid um if you can go there and have and force yourself back there and and say no i'm strong enough i can go back i'm i'm not afraid of this place um that can be a real uh real win um psychologically for yourself uh when you're ready obviously i mean and it it's going to be uncomfortable but you can you can settle yourself to it and say no i'm i'm okay i don't need to be in fight or flight mode here anymore okay so let's see uh the place had filled me with dread after my whipping but i forced myself to spend time there to prove to myself that i could after it no longer unnerved me i sat there because the stares of the students amused me now i sat there because i was comfortable it was my place and because we spent a fair amount of time together, it had become Willem and Simmons' place, too. If they thought my choice an odd one, they didn't speak of it. You haven't been around very much, Willem said, around a mouthful of meat pie. Been sick? Right, Simmons said sarcastically. He's been sick a whole month. Willem glared at him and grumbled, reminding me of Kilvin for a moment. His expression made Simmons laugh. Will's more polite than I am. I'm betting you've been spending all your free hours walking to Imre and back, courting some fabulously attractive young bard. He gestured at the loot case that lay at my side. He looks like he's been sick, Willem looked at me with a critical eye. Your woman hasn't been taking care of you. He's lovesick, Simmons said knowingly. Can't eat, can't sleep. You think of her when you should be trying to memorize your cipher. I couldn't think of anything to say. See, Simmons said to Will. She's stolen his tongue as well as his heart. All his words are for her. He can spare none for us. <laughs> Can't spare any time, either, Willem said into his rapidly dwindling meat pie. It was true, of course. I had been neglecting my friends even more than I had been neglecting myself. I felt a flush of guilt wash over me. I couldn't tell them the full truth that I needed to make the most of this term because it would likely be my last. I was flat broke. If you cannot understand why I couldn't bring myself to tell them this, then I doubt you have ever been truly poor. I doubt you can really understand how embarrassing it is to own only two shirts, to cut your own hair as best you can because you can't afford a barber. I lost a button and couldn't spare a shim to buy a matching one. I tore out the knee of my pants and had to make do with the wrong color thread for mending. I couldn't afford salt for my meals or drinks on my rare evenings out with friends. The money I earned in Kilvin's shop was spent on essentials, ink, soap, loot strings. The only other thing I could afford was pride. I couldn't bear the thought of my two friends, knowing how desperate my situation was. If I suffered a piece of extraordinary good luck, I might be able to muster two talents to pay the interest on my debt to Devi but it would require a direct act of God for me to somehow gather enough money to pay that and next term's tuition as well. After I was forced out of the university and squared my debt with Devi, I didn't know what I had to do. Pull up stakes and head for Annalyn to look for Denna, perhaps. I looked at them, not knowing what to say. Will, Simon, I'm sorry. It's just that I've been so busy lately. 
Simon grew a little more serious, and I saw that he was earnestly hurt at my unexplained absence. We're busy too, you know. I've got rhetoric and chemistry and I'm learning Siaru. He turned to Will and scowled. You should know I'm beginning to hate your language, you shim bastard. To Kralim, the young sealed replied amiably. Simon turned back to me and spoke with remarkable candor. It's just that we'd like to see you more than once every handful of days as you run from mains to the fishery. Girls are wonderful, I'll admit. But when one takes one of my friends away, I get a little jealous. He gave a sudden sunny smile. Not that I think of you in that way, of course. I found it hard to swallow past the sudden lump in my throat. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been missed. For a long time, I hadn't had anyone to miss me. I felt the beginning of hot tears in the back of my throat. Really, there isn't a girl. I mean it. I swallowed hard, trying to regain my composure. Sim, I think we've been missing something here. Willem was looking at me oddly. Take a good look at him. Simon gave me a similar analytical stare. That look from the two of them was enough to unnerve me, pushing me back from the edge of tears. Now, Willem said as if lecturing, how many terms has our young Ilir been attending the university? Realization poured into Sim's honest face. Oh, anyone care to tell me? I said petulantly. Willem ignored my question. What classes are you taking? Everything, I said. Glad to have an excuse to complain. Geometry, observation in the Medica, advanced sim sympathy with Elxidal, and I've got my apprenticeship under Monet in the fishery. Simon looked a little shocked. No wonder you look like you haven't slept in a span of days, he said. Willem nodded to himself. And you're still working in Kilvin's shop, aren't you? A couple hours every night. Simon was aghast. And you're learning an instrument at the same time? Are you insane? The music is the only thing that keeps me grounded. I said, reaching down to touch my lute. And I'm not learning to play, I just need practice. Willem and Simon exchanged looks. How long do you think he has? Simon looked me over. Span and a half tops. What do you mean? Willem leaned forward. We all bite off too much, sooner or later. But some students don't know when to spit their mouthful. They burn out. They quit or botch their exams. Some crack. It usually happens to students in their first year. He gave me a significant look. I haven't bitten off too much, I said. Look in a mirror, Willem suggested frankly. I opened my mouth to reassure Will and Sim that I was fine, but just then I heard the hour being struck, and I only had time for a hurried goodbye. Even so, I had to run to make it to advanced sympathy on time. Elksadal stood between two medium-sized braziers. In his well-trimmed beard and dark master's robe, he still reminded me of the stereotypical evil magician that appears in so many bad Aetherin plays. What each of you must remember is that the sympathist is tied to flame, he said. We are its master and its servant. He tucked his hands into his long sleeves and began to pace again. We are the masters of fire, for we have dominion over it. Alcidal struck a nearby brazier with the flat of his hand, making it ring softly. Flames kindled in the coals and began to lick hungrily upward. The energy in all things belongs to the arcanist. We command fire and fire obeys. 
Dal walked slowly to the other corner of the room. The brazier at his back dimmed while the one he walked toward sparked to life and began to burn. I appreciated the showmanship. Dal stopped and faced the class again. But we are also servants of fire, because fire is the most common form of energy, and without energy our prowess as sympathists is of little use. He turned his back to the class and began erasing formula from the slate board. Gather your materials, and we'll see who has to knock heads with Ilir Kvoth today. He began to chalk up a list of all the students' names. Mine was at the top. Three span ago, Dal had started making us compete against each other. He called it dueling, and though it was welcome, it was a welcome break from the monotony of lecture, this most recent activity had a sinister element, too. A hundred students left the Arcanum every year, perhaps a quarter of them with their guilders. That meant that every year there were a hundred more people in the world that had been trained in the use of sympathy people who, for one reason or another, you might have to pit your will against later in life. Though Dal never said as much, we knew we were being taught beyond something beyond mere concentration and ingenuity. We were being taught how to fight. Okay, and let me pause here. That is a very good skill to have, to know how to fight. It's important. We like to think that we don't need it, but knowing how to fight, or being able to muster the will to fight. That's important, too. We think that our modern world has so much safety, but really, really, one day you'll need to know how to fight, and you'll rue the day you don't. The day you don't know how, and you need to. Okay, let's see. Uh, we were being trained how to fight. Okay. Elksa Dal kept careful track of the results. In the class of 38, I was the only one to remain undefeated. By this point, even the most thick-headed and grudging students were being forced to admit that my quick admittance to the Arcanum was something other than a fluke. Dueling could also be profitable in a small way, as there was a bit of clandestine betting. When we wanted to bet on our own duels, Sovoy and I placed bets for each other. Though, as a rule, I usually didn't have much money to spare. Thus, it was no coincidence that Sovoy and I bumped into each other uh, while we were gathering our materials. I handed him two jots underneath the table. He slid them into his pocket without looking at me. Goodness, he said quietly. Someone's pretty confident today. I shrugged nonchalantly, though in truth I was a little nervous. I had started the term penniless and been scraping by every sin ever since, but yesterday Kilvin had paid me for a span's work in the fishery. Two jots. All the money I had in the world. Sovoy began to rummage around in a drawer, bringing out sympathy wax, twine, and a few pieces of metal. I don't know how well I'll be able to do for you. The odds are getting bad. I'm guessing three to one is the best you'll get today. Are you still interested if it gets that low? I sighed. The odds were down the downside to my undefeated rank. Yesterday they had been two to one, meaning I would have had to risk two pennies for the chance to win one. I've got a little something planned, I said. Don't bet until we've set terms. You should get at least three to one against me. Against you? he muttered as he gathered up an armful of paraphernalia. Not unless you're going up against Dal. 
I turned my face to conceal a slight embarrassed blush at the compliment. Dell clapped his hands, and everyone rushed to take their proper place. I was paired with a vintage boy, Fenton. He was one step below me in the class ranking. I respected him as one of the few in the class that could pose a real challenge to me in the right situation. Right then. Elksa Dal said, rubbing his hands together eagerly. Fenton, you're lower on the ranks. Pick your poison. Candles. And your link? Dal asked ritualistically. With candles, it was always either wicking or wax. Wick. He held up a piece for everyone to see. Dal turned to me. Link, I dug into a pocket, and held up my link with a flourish. Straw. There was a murmur from the class at this. It was a ridiculous link. The best I could hope for is a 3% transfer, maybe 5. Fenton's wicking would be 10 times better. Straw? Straw, I said, with slightly more confidence than I felt. If this didn't tip the odds against me, I didn't know what would. Straw it is, then, Dal said easily. Elier Fenton, since Kvoth is undefeated, you will have the choice of source. A quiet laugh spread through the class. My stomach dropped. I hadn't expected that. Normally, whoever doesn't pick the game gets to choose the source. I had been planning on choosing Brazier, knowing that the quantity of heat would help offset my self-imposed handicap. Fenton grinned, knowing his advantage. No source. I grimaced. All we would have to draw from was our own body heat, difficult in the best of circumstances, not to mention a little dangerous. I couldn't win. Not only was I going to lose my perfect rank, I had no way to signal Sovoy not to bet my last two jots. I tried to meet his eyes, but he was already caught up in quiet, intense negotiations with a handful of other students. Fenton and I moved wordlessly to sit on opposite sides of a large work table. Elksadel set two thick stumps of candle down, one in front of each of us. The object was to light your opponent's candle without letting him do the same to yours. This involved splitting your mind into two different pieces. One piece tried to hold the alar that your piece of wicking, or straw if you were stupid, <laughs> was the same as the wick of the candle you were trying to light. Then you drew energy from your source to make it happen. Meanwhile, the second piece of your mind was busy trying to maintain the belief that your opponent's piece of wicking was not the same as the wick of your candle. If all of this sounds difficult, believe me, you don't know the half of it. Making it worse was the fact that neither of us had an easy source to draw from. You had to be careful using yourself as a source. Your body is warm for a reason. It responds badly when that heat is pulled as w it, when its heat is pulled away. At a gesture from Elksadal, we began. I immediately devoted my whole mind to the to the defense of my own candle and began to think furiously. There was no way I could win. It doesn't matter how skilled a fencer you are, you can't help but lose when your opponent has a blade of Ramston steel and you've chosen to fight with a willow switch. <laughs> I lowered myself into, hotter, into the heart of stone. Then, still devoting most of my mind to the protection of my candle, I muttered a binding between my candle and his. I reached out and tipped my candle on its side, forcing him to make a grab for his before it did the same and rolled away. I tried to take quick advantage of his distraction and set his candle aflame. I threw myself into it and felt a chill bleed up my arm from my right hand that held the piece of straw. Nothing happened. His candle remained cold and dark. I cupped my hand around the wick of my candle, blocking his line of sight. It was a petty trick and largely useless against a skilled sympathist. 
a skilled sympathist, but my only hope was to rattle him in some way. Hey, Fen, have you heard the one about the tinker, the Tellin, and... Sorry, let me start over. Hey, Fen, I said, have you heard the one about the tinker, the Tellin, the farmer's daughter, and the butter churn yet? Fen gave no response. His pale face was locked in fierce concentration. I gave up discrap... Discrap... Distraction as a lost cause. Fenton was too smart to be thrown off that way. Besides, I was finding it difficult to maintain the necessary concentration to keep my candle safe. I lowered myself more deeply into the heart of stone and forgot the world apart from the two candles and a piece of wick and straw. After a minute, I was covered in a clammy, chill sweat. I shivered. Fenton saw this and gave me a smile with bloodless lips. I redoubled my efforts, but his candle ignored my best attempts to force it into the flame into flame. Five minutes passed with the whole class quiet as stones. Most duels lasted no longer than a minute or two, one person quickly proving himself more clever or possessed of a stronger will. Both my arms were cold now. I saw a muscle in Fenton's neck twitch spastically like a horse's flank, trying to shake loose a biting fly. His posture went rigid as he suppressed the urge to shiver. A wisp of smoke began to curl from the wick of my candle. I bore down. I realized that my breath was hissing through my clenched teeth. My lips pulled back in a feral grin. Fenton didn't seem to notice, his eyes growing glassy and unfocused. I shivered again so violently that I almost missed seeing the tremor in his hand. Then, slowly, Fenton's head began to nod toward the tabletop. His eyelids drooped. I set my teeth and was rewarded to see a thin curl of smoke rise from the wick of his candle. Woodenly, Fenton turned to look, but instead of rallying his own defense, he made a slow, leaden gesture of dismissal and lay his head in the crook of his arm. He didn't look up as the candle near his elbow spat fitfully to life. There was a brief scattering of applause mixed in with exclamations of disbelief. Someone pounded me on the back. How about that? Wore himself out. No, I said thickly and reached across the table. With clumsy fingers, I prized open the hand that held the wicking and saw it had blood on it. Master Dal, I said as quickly as I could manage. He's got the chills. Speaking made me realize how cold my lips felt. You, but, sorry, but Dal was already there bringing a blanket to wrap around the boy. You, he pointed at one of the students at random. Bring someone from the Medica. Someone from the Medica. Go. The student left at a run. Foolish, Master Dal murmured at a, a binding for heat. He looked over at me. You should probably walk around a bit. You don't look much better than he does. There was no more dueling that day. The rest of the class watched as Fenton revived slowly under Elksa Dal's care. By the time an older Elthe from the Medica arrived, Fenton had warmed enough to begin shivering violently. After a quarter hour of warm blankets and careful sympathy, Fenton was able to drink something hot, though his hands still shook. Once all the hubbub was finished, it was nearly third bell. Master Dal managed to get all the students seated and quiet long enough to say a few words. What we saw today was a prime example of Binder's chills. The body is a delicate thing, and a few degrees of heat lost rapidly can upset the entire system. A mild case of chills is just that, chilling, but more extreme cases can lead to shock and hypothermia. Dal looked around. Can anyone tell me what Fenton's mistake was? There was a moment of silence, then a hand raised. Yes, Bray? He used blood. 
When heat is lost from the blood, the body cools as a whole unit. This is not always advantageous, as the extremities can stand a more drastic temperature loss than the viscera can. Why would anyone consider using blood, then? It offers up more heat. Sorry, it offers up heat more rapidly than the flesh. How much would have been safe for him to draw? Dal looked around the room. Two degrees? Someone volunteered. One and a half, Dal corrected and wrote a few equations on the board to demonstrate how much heat this would provide. Given his symptoms, how much do you suppose he actually drew? There was a pause. Finally, Sovoy spoke up. Eight or nine. Very good, Dell said grudgingly. It's nice that at least one of you has been doing the reading. His expression grew grave. Sympathy is not for the weak of mind, but neither is it for the overconfident. If we had not been here to give Fenton the care he needed... He would have slipped quietly asleep and died. He paused to let the words sink in. Better you should know your honest limit than overguess your abilities and lose control. Third bell struck, and the room was filled with sudden noise as students stood to leave. Master Dal raised his voice to be heard. Illyric of Oath, would you mind staying behind for a moment? I grimaced. Savoy walked behind me, clapped me on the shoulder, and muttered, Luck. I couldn't tell if he was referring to my victory or wishing me well. After everyone was gone, Dal turned and set down the rag he had been using to wipe the slate clean. So, he said conversationally, how did the numbers work out? I wasn't surprised he knew about the betting. Eleven to one, I, ad I admitted. I'd made twenty-two jots, a little over two talents. The presence of the m that money in my pocket warmed me. He gave me a speculative look. How are you feeling? You were a little pale at the end yourself. I had a little shiver, I lied. Actually, in the, com in the commotion that followed Fenton's collapse, I had slipped out and had a frightening few minutes in the back hallway. Shivers that were close to seizures had made it almost impossible to stay on my feet. Luckily, no one had found me shaking in the hallway. My jaw clenched so tight that I feared my teeth might break. But no one had seen me. My reputation was intact. Dal gave me a look and tol that told me he might suspect the truth. Come over, he made a motion to one of the still-burning braziers. A little warm won't hurt you. I didn't argue. As I held my hands to the fire, I felt myself relax a bit. Suddenly I realized how weary I was. My eyes were itchy from too little sleep. My body felt heavy as if my bones were made of lead. With a reluctant sigh, I pulled my hands back and opened my eyes. Dal was looking closely at my face. I've got to go, I said with a little regret in my voice. Thanks for the use of your fire. We're both sympathists, Dal said, giving me a friendly wave as I gathered my things and headed for the door. You're welcome to it any time. Well, at least he's got somebody in the Masters who treats him well. Later that night in the mews, Willem opened his door to my knocking. I'll be damned, he said, two times in one day. To what do I owe the honor? I think you know, I grumbled and pushed my way inside the cell-like little room. I leaned my loot case against the wall and fell into a chair. Kilvin has banned me from my work in the shop. Willem sat forward on his bed. Why's that? I gave him a knowing look. I expect it's because you and Simmons stopped by and suggested it to him. 
He watched me for a moment, then shrugged. You figured it out quicker than I thought you would. He rubbed the side of his face. You don't seem terribly upset. I had been furious. Just as my fortune seemed to be turning, I was forced to leave my only paying job because of well-intentioned meddling by my friends. But rather than storm over and rage at them, I'd gone away to the roof of the mains and played for a while to cool my head. My music calmed me, as it always did, and while I played I thought things through. My apprenticeship with Monet was going well, but there was simply too much to learn. How to fire the kilns, how to draw wire to the proper consistency, which alloys to choose for the proper effects. I couldn't hope to bowl through it the way I had learned my runes. I couldn't earn enough working in Kilvin's shop to pay back Devi at the end of the month, let alone make enough for tuition, too. I probably would be, I admitted, but Kilvin made me look in a mirror. I gave him a tired smile. I look like hell. You look like beat-up hell, he corrected me matter-of-factly, then paused awkwardly. I'm glad you're not upset. Simon knocked as he pushed the door open. Guilt chased surprise off his face when he saw me sitting there. Aren't you supposed to be, um, in the fishery? he asked lamely. I, I laughed, and Simmons' relief was almost tangible. Willem moved a stack of paper off another chair, and Simmons slouched into it. All is forgiven, I said magnanimously. All I ask is this. Tell me everything you know about the Aeolian. Is that how you say that? Let's see. Back to the pronunciation guide, as is my lot. Let's see if that's in here. Aeolian. The Aeolian. Okay, it's spelled E-O-L-I-A-N. Aeolian. All right. Fifty-three. Slow circles. The, the Aeolian is where our long-sought player is waiting in the wings. I have not forgotten that she is what I am moving toward. If I seem to be caught in slow circling of the subject, it is only appropriate, as she and I have always moved toward each other in slow circles. Luckily, Willem and Simon had both been to the Aeolian. A the Aeolian. It's, it's A. Come on. I, I'll get this eventually. Been to the Aeolian. Together they told me what little I didn't already know. There were a lot of places you could go in Imre to listen to music. In fact, nearly every inn, tavern, and boarding house had some manner of musicians strumming, singing, or piping in the background. But the Aeolian was different. It hosted the best musicians in the city. If you knew music, sorry, if you knew good music from bad, you knew the Aeolian had the best. To get in the front door of the Aeolian cost you a whole copper jot. Once you were inside, you could stay as long as you wished and listen and listen to as much music as you liked. But paying at the door did not give a musician the right to play at the Aeolian. A musician who wished to set foot upon the Aeolian's stage, had to pay for the privilege. One silver talent. That's right. Folk paid to play at the Aeolian, not the other way around. Why would anyone pay such an outrageous amount of money simply to play music? Well, 
some of those who gave their silver were simply the self-indulgent rich to them a talent was not a great price to set themselves on such proud display but serious musicians paid too if your performance impressed the audience and the owners enough you were given a token a tiny set of silver pipes that could be mounted on a pin or necklace talent pipes were recognized as clear marks of distinction at most sizable inns within two hundred miles of imre if you had your set of talent pipes you were admitted to the aeolian for free and could play whenever the fancy took you the only responsibility the talent pipes carried was that of performance if you had earned your pipes you could be called upon to play this was usually not a heavy burden as the nobility who frequented the aeolian usually gave money or gifts to performers who pleased them it was the upper class version of buying drinks for the fiddler some musicians played with little hope of actually gaining their pipes they paid to play because you never knew who might be in the aeolian that night listening a good performance of a single song might not get you your pipes but it might earn you a wealthy patron instead a patron you'll never guess what i heard simmons said one evening as we sat on our usual bench in the pennant square we were alone as willem was off making eyes at serving girls at anchors students have been hearing all manner of odd things from mains at night really i feigned disinterest simmons pressed on yes some say that it's the ghost of a student who got lost in the building and starved to death he tapped the side of his nose with a finger like an odd like an old gaffer telling a story they say he wanders the hills even to this day never able to find his way outside let me read that again i read that wrong they say he wanders the halls i said hills the halls even to this day never able to find his way outside ah other opinions suggest it's an angry spirit they say it tortures animals especially cats that's the sound of the students here late at night tortured cats guts quite a terrifying sound i understand i looked at him <laughs> no, okay pause you understand that loot strings are often made of cat gut okay uh, let's see uh I looked at him. He seemed almost ready to burst with laughing. Oh, let it out, I told him with mock severity. Go on, you deserve it for being so terribly clever, despite the fact that no one uses gut strings in this day and age. He chortled delightedly to himself. I picked up one of his sweet cakes and began to eat it, hoping to teach him a valuable lesson in humility. So you're still going at it? I nodded. Simon looked relieved. I thought you might have changed your plans. I hadn't seen you carrying your loot around lately. Not necessary, I explained. Now that I have time to practice, I don't have to worry about sneaking in a few minutes whenever I can grab them. A group of students passed by. One of them waved to Simon. When are you going to do it? This morning. Not as in, like, this morning today, but like this coming morning. You have to remember that's one of their days. This morning, I said. So soon? Sim asked. It was only two span ago that you were worried about being rusty. Has it all come back so quickly? Not all of it, I admitted. It'll take years for it all to come back. I shrugged and popped the last of the sweet cake into my mouth. 
but it's easy again. The music doesn't stop in my hands anymore. It just... I struggled to explain, then shrugged. I'm ready. Honestly, I would have liked another month's practice, another year's practice, before gambling away an entire talent. But there was no time. The term was nearly over. I needed money to stave off my debt to Devi and pay my upcoming tuition. I couldn't wait any longer. You sure? Sim asked. I've heard people try for their talent that were really good. Early this term, an old man sang a song about about this woman whose husband had gone off to war. In the village smithy, I said. Whatever, Simmons said dismissively. What I'm saying is that he was really good. I laughed and cried and hurt all over. He gave me an anxious look. But he didn't get his pipes. I covered my own anxiety with a smile. You still haven't heard me play, have you? You know damn well I haven't, he said crossly. I smiled. I had refused to play for Willem and Simmon while I was out of practice. Their opinions were nearly as important as those at the Aeolian. Well, you'll get your chance this morning, I teased. Will you come? Simon nodded. Willem, too, barring earthquakes or rain of blood. <laughs> yeah, jeez, if blood is raining, that's a... God, yeah, no. Okay, I looked up at the sunset. I should go, I said, make, uh, getting to my feet. Practice makes the master... Sim waved, and I headed to the muse, where I sat down long enough to spoon up my beans and chew through a flat piece of tough gray meat. I took my small loaf of bread with me, drawing a few odd lo looks from the nearby students. I headed to my bunk and retrieved my loot from the trunk at the foot of the bed. Then, given the rumors Sim had mentioned, I took one of the trickier ways onto the roof of mains, shimmying up a series of drain pipes in a sheltered box alley. I didn't want to draw any extra attention to my nighttime activities there. It was fully dark by the time I made it into the isolated courtyard with the apple tree. All the windows were dark. There's a name coming up, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this right. All the windows were dark. I looked down from the edge of the roof, seeing nothing but shadows. Ari, I called. Are you there? You're late, came the vaguely petulant reply. I'm sorry, I said. Do you want to come up tonight? A slight pause. No, come down. There's not much moon tonight, I said in my best encouraging tones. Are you sure you don't want to come up? I heard a rustle from the hedges below and then saw Ari scamper up the tree like a squirrel. She ran around the edge of the roof, then pulled up a short few dozen feet away. At my best guess, Ari was only a few years older than me, certainly no more than twenty. She dressed in tattered clothes that left her arms and legs bare. She was shorter than me by almost a foot. She was thin. Part of this was simply her tiny frame, but... There was more to it than that. 
Her cheeks were hollow, and her bare arms waifishly narrow. Her long hair was so fine that it trailed her, floating in the air like a cloud. It had taken me a long while to draw her out of hiding. I'd suspected someone was listening to me practice from the courtyard, but it had been nearly two span before I caught a glimpse of her. Seeing that she was half-starved, I began bringing whatever food I could carry away from the mess and leaving it for her. Even so, it was another span before she had joined me on the roof as I practiced my lute. The last few days she'd even started talking. I'd expected her to be sullen in suspicion, but nothing could be further from the truth. She was bright-eyed and enthusiastic. Though I couldn't help but be reminded of myself and Tarbine when I saw her, there was a little there was little real resemblance. Ari was scrupulously clean and full of joy. She didn't like the open sky or bright lights or people. I guessed she was some student who had gone cracked and run underground before she could be confined to Haven. I hadn't learned much about her, as she was still shy and skittish. When I'd asked her name, she bolted back underground and didn't return for days. So I picked a name for her. Ari. That's A-U-R-I. Auri. Though in my heart I still though I let's see, though in my heart I thought of her as my little moon fay. Auri came a few steps closer, stopped, waited, then darted forward again. She did this several times until she stood in front of me. Standing still, her hair spread in the air around her like a halo. She held both her hands in front of her just under her chin. She reached out and tugged my sleeve, then pulled her hand back. "'What did you bring me?' she asked excitedly. I smiled. "'What did you bring me?' I teased gently. She smiled and thrust her hand forward. Something gleamed in, gleamed in the moonlight. "'A key,' she said proudly, pressing it on me. I took it. It had a pleasing weight in my hand. "'It's very nice,' I said. "'What does it unlock?' "'The moon.' she said, her expression grave. That should be useful, I said, looking it over. That's what I thought, she said. That way, if there's a door in the moon, you can open it. She sat cross-legged on the roof and grinned up at me. Not that I would encourage that sort of reckless behavior. <laughs> I squatted down and opened my loot case. I brought you some bread. I handed her the loaf of brown barley bread, wrapped in a piece of cloth, and a bottle of water. That is very nice as well, she said graciously. The bottle seemed very large in her hands. What's in the water? She asked as she pulled out the cork and peered down into it. Flowers, I said, and the part of the moon that isn't in the sky tonight. I put that in there, too. She looked back up. I already said the moon, she said with a hint of reproach. Just the flowers, then, and the shine off the back of a dragonfly. I wanted a piece of the moon, but blue dragonfly shine was as close as I could get. She tipped the bottle up and took a sip. It's lovely, she said, brushing back several strands of hair that were drifting in front of her face. Auri spread out the cloth and began to eat. She tore small pieces from the loaf and chewed them delicately, somehow making the whole process look genteel. 
I like white bread, she said conversationally between mouthfuls. Me too, I said as I lowered myself into a sitting position, when I can get it. She nodded and looked around at the starry night sky and the crescent moon. I like it when it's cloudy, too, but this is okay. It's cozy, like the underthing. Underthing? I asked. She was rarely this talkative. I live in the underthing, Ari said easily. It goes all over. Do you like it down there? Ari's eyes lit up. Holy God, yes, it's marvelous. You can just look forever. She turned to look at me. I have news, she said teasingly. What's that? I asked. She looked, sh sorry, she took another bite and finished chewing before she spoke. I went out last night. A sly smile. On top of things. Really? I said, not bothering to hide my surprise. How did you like it? It was lovely. I went looking around, she said, obviously pleased with herself. I saw Elodin. Master Elodin? I asked. She nodded. Was he on top of things, too? She nodded again, chewing. Did he see you? Her smile burst out again, and making her look closer to eight than eighteen. Nobody sees me. Besides, he was busy listening to the wind. She cupped her hands around her mouth and made a hooting noise. There was good wind for listening that night, she added confidentially. While I was trying to make sense of what she'd said, Ari finished the last of her bread and clapped her hands excitedly. Now play, she said breathlessly. Play, play. Grinning, I pulled my lute out of its case. I couldn't hope for a more enthusiastic audience than Ari. Ah, well, looks like it's a little too long of a chapter for this next one. Yep. Alrighty. Unfortunately, we'll have to end there tonight. Good night, everyone. Sleep well. And come back tomorrow for more.